The word of God from Lamentations 3, 1 through 24. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven me away and forced me to walk in darkness instead of light. Yes, he repeatedly turns his hand against me all day long. He has worn away my flesh and skin. He has broken my bones. He has laid siege against me, encircling me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have been dead for ages. He has walled me in so I cannot get out. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I cry out and plead for help, he blocks out my prayer. He has walled in my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear waiting in ambush, a lion in hiding. He forced me off my way and tore me to pieces. He left me desolate. He strung his bow and set me as the target for his arrow. He pierced my kidneys with shafts from his quiver. I am a laughingstock to all my people, mocked by their songs all day long. He filled me with bitterness, satiated me with wormwood. He ground my teeth with gravel and made me cower in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. Then I thought, my future is lost as well as my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my homelessness, the wormwood and the poison. I continually remember them and have become depressed. Yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my hope in him. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. My name is Isaiah. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to encourage you to take a copy of the scriptures in front of you, perhaps under the seats in front of you, and turn to page 729, the passage that Adam just read for us. This morning, we are wrapping up our series on prayer. We have walked through the Lord's Prayer together, and our theme has been practicing partnership with God. But there's one form of prayer that the Lord's Prayer references only indirectly when it acknowledges our brokenness, the brokenness within us, and the brokenness around us. But this prayer form is a common one in the Bible. So our goal this morning is to expand our prayer vocabulary a bit. And in doing so, I know I'm taking some risks this morning, but I believe that God is calling each of us to take some risks in our walk of faith with him, and I want to acknowledge that right up front. So let me begin by asking you this question. When you're entering the darkness of life in a broken world, is your worldview able to hold up under the weight of pain? 
how you make sense of reality, how you perceive the world, does it have enough horsepower to carry the freight of sorrow wrapped up in it? The freight of sorrow wrapped up in your crushed dreams or your job loss, the undiagnosed illness or the returning cancer, the sorrow of infertility or unexpected pregnancy, the sorrow of relational brokenness or a broken marriage, the sorrow of depression, loneliness, or the deconstruction of a friend. When sorrow comes, we typically respond in one of two ways, whether we're Christian or not. And both ways are illustrated, bear with me here, by a popular Christmas song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. The song goes like this. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight, and then later, our troubles will be miles away. What's the message there? Just look beyond the trouble. Tap your magic Christmas heels together. Ignore the pain. It won't last. But minimizing the pain never eliminates it. In fact, it deepens it. And pretending trouble will magically disappear on its own, friends, that's not Christianity. It's sentimentalism. It's not gospel hope. But there's another approach to pain, and it's actually found in the original version of this song that you will not hear sung in the stores at Christmas time. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. <laughs> Next year, we all may be living in the past. Faithful friends who were dear to us will be near to us no more. From now on, we'll have to muddle through somehow. So, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Well, there's a cup of cheer for you. We're on our own. Just muddle through. Oh, and have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> it's cynicism. It was a little too sad for Judy Garland to sing that version in Meet Me in St. Louis, so the producers requested a rewrite, and that eventually led to the sentimental version we hear today. I wonder if we had a printout of your emotional response in a graph chart as Adam read for us Lamentations 3. I wonder what it would have looked like. The worldview of the Bible is neither sentimental nor cynical in response to real life pain. So what happens internally when you hear a biblical author say, God has broken my bones? He's buried me in a dark place like those long dead. He's bound me in heavy chains. He's blocked my way with a high stone wall. He's hidden like a bear or a lion waiting to attack me. And then he's dragged me off the path and torn me to pieces, leaving me 
hopeless, helpless, and devastated. He's drawn his bow, and he's made me the target of his arrows. He's made me chew on gravel. Jeremiah is being brutally honest about what it feels like God is doing. And for some of us, this is borderline offensive. But I can relate to Jeremiah. And I think if many of us are being honest, so can you. You've had weeks like that. You've had months like that. You've had years like that. Back in July of 2019, God wrecked the plans that Elizabeth and I had laid out for our lives. And it wasn't a slow and gradual dismantling. It was a sudden and painful explosion. A dream job we were banking on had fallen through, and our current reality no longer felt like home. I wrote these words in my journal on July 20th, 2019. I'm so discouraged. If this is depression, it's awful. If it's not, strengthen my brothers and sisters facing far worse. I feel empty, cold, like a dead tree in late fall, not a participant in the beauty of midfall or the first snowfall. And then the emotions come, overwhelming sorrow, the tears won't stop, and I don't know why I'm crying. The burden I'm placing on Elizabeth grieves me. Strengthen her. Oh God, open a window and give me some light. Open your word and give me life. How long? The days seem like weeks, and still I'm a shepherd. I need a shepherd. Father, what are you doing? All seems empty dark, lonely? Why do I feel as though the world is falling apart and the sun has set never to rise? Has my God died? Has an idol been slain and I can't cope? Is there some unknown sin? Do you desire that I remain frustrated? And then I recorded what night felt like in this season. Dark night, once a time for rest, now bids me come with mocking delight. Once a chance to cleanse the mind and body of daily stress. Now, a theater of scorning voices calling out ridicule for unfounded sorrow. My experience is far from unique. You've had dark nights like that. Maybe that was last night. So, when sorrow and grief and frustration and discouragement and perhaps even anger at perceived or real injustice just seems to overwhelm you, when it strikes you unexpectedly, let me ask you again. Does your worldview have the horsepower to bear up under that pain without trying to back out of it through sentimentalism and without trying to just suck it up and bear it through cynicism? 
or let's depersonize it just a touch. When someone in your life group is afflicted with intense pain, does your faith give you the patient grace to grieve in silence and lament in prayer? Or does your own discomfort with the reality of another's pain cause you to have to fill that void? You've got to say something, fill the silence with anything. God knows he can trust you with this. Oh, I'm sure the Lord has something better for you. Some Christianized version of the sun will come up tomorrow. Sentimentalism. It may make you feel better, but it doesn't help their pain. It's not distinctly Christian. Back at the end of January, Elizabeth and I traveled to Phoenix to meet our soon-to-be nephew for the first time. We spent some time with family. And then on a whim, we drove the four hours north to the Grand Canyon, and we decided to enjoy that after a snowfall. These pictures can't do it justice. The yawning cavern was a sight. It's overwhelming. And it's treacherous. Dozens of people die every year from falling over the edge of the Grand Canyon. It's especially treacherous when the edges are covered in snow. And you know what? It doesn't do any good to pretend otherwise. To appreciate the depth of that chasm and the width of that chasm, you have to travel through it. You have to hike it. Standing on the edge can't do it justice. I think caring for others in sorrow and soul-level pain is like putting up guardrails for someone to navigate the Grand Canyon. And instead of those massive iron guardrails, what if we decided we wanted to make a fence out of dental floss to help people navigate the treacherous rim? Great idea, right? Dental floss can't support anyone's weight. It wouldn't prevent anyone from entering that canyon or from going over the edge. And our sentimental statements to ourselves in our pain or to others is just so much dental floss. It can't support the pain. So back to our question. What do you do at the crossroads of God's promises intersecting major life problems? When reality and hope are separated by a yawning chasm, does your worldview have a language for that in-between space? After all, that's the space we live in, right? A sort of middle earth, an in-between world of the promises of God laid out before us, and we've begun to experience in some small way the fulfillment of those promises, but we're still surrounded by so much brokenness and filled by so much brokenness. But God has given us a gift, the grace of lament. The title of this message can be found in the subtitle of a book about lament. 
That book is Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark Brogup. The Grace of Lament. Lament is learning the language of this in-between broken world. Lament is descending into the chasm, motivated by the brokenness of what is and the hope of what will be. Lament alone can support the soul through the crushing weight of sorrow. Paul Miller, in his book, The Praying Life, describes lament as desert praying. To switch analogies again, biblical lament alone has the horsepower to carry the freight of whatever sorrow you are traveling with in this in-between world. Mark Brogrup says it this way, Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promises of God's goodness. And Paul Miller would add, A lament connects God's past promise with my present chaos, hoping for a better future. But what does lament look like? In addition to the passage that Adam read for us, let's get a biblical sampling using an idiomatic English paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. Isaiah 63, 7. Why, God, did you make us wander from your ways? Why did you make us cold and stubborn so that we no longer worshipped you in awe? Or how about I believe this is Psalm 10. Long enough, O God, Psalm 13, sorry. Long enough, God, you've ignored me long enough. I've looked at the back of your head long enough. Long enough, I've carried this ton of trouble, lived with a stomach full of pain. So we have pictures of lament throughout the Bible. But how do we lament? What does it look like for us to take our grief, deal with it, carry it to God, learning the language of lament? Well, Mark Vrogup unpacks the process of lament in his book that I already referenced, so let's state them for our encouragement and see how they show up in this passage in Lamentations. First, if we are to lament, we need to turn. Turn. In the words of Isaiah 64, 7, rouse yourself to take hold of God. Turn to him. Deliberately turn from the safety schemes that we use to cope. From our self-reliance, turn from the places that you seek security. Those spaces in which your false hopes are placed. Turn from those substances and activities that you use to dull the pain. Turn from those and turn to God. Failing to lament is evidence that our hearts are turning from God to cynicism. Paul Miller again helps us here. A sure sign of Israel's wandering hearts is that no one is in God's face. 
No one takes hold of God and pulls. In Jeremiah 2, God is upset with Israel because they are not lamenting. We think laments are disrespectful. God says the opposite. Lamenting shows you are engaged with God in a vibrant, living faith. We live in a broken world. If the pieces of our world aren't breaking your heart and you aren't in God's face about them, then you are becoming quietly cynical. You've thrown in the towel. We describe lament as descending into the yawning chasm between what we experience now, between what is and what will be. But in lament, that descending is not alone. It's taking God with you. It's inviting him, whether you feel like he's listening or not, to walk with you in the physical, spiritual, emotional, relational pain of your current circumstances. It's grabbing hold of God by faith. It's pulling him into your reality. And it's hiking down into the chasm. Now, notice God's grace towards us in this. Does God need us to pull him into our reality? As if he were somehow distant and unobservant. Of course not. But how else can our faith be expressed in the pain and the sorrow if we don't pull on God? It's a bold move, but it's not irreverent to pull God into our experience. After all, the summons has been given to us to enter the throne room of grace. Hebrews chapter 4, therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's not faith to refuse to approach the throne. That's stubbornness. That's self-reliance. That's cynicism. And it's not the way of the Christian. The Christian descends into the chasm and pulls God with. We see this in Lamentations 3.19 subtly, but it's there in an address to God. Remember my affliction and my homelessness, the wormwood and the poison. Number one, turn. Second, complain. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase once again, Psalm 6. Please, God, no more yelling, no more trips to the woodshed. Treat me nice for a change. I'm starved for affection. Can't you see I'm black and blue, beat up badly in bones and soul? God, how long will it take for you to let up? How about Psalm 10, 1? God, are you avoiding me? Where are you when I need you? Complain. 
pour out your heart to God. Some of you fear doing so because you haven't actually allowed yourself to enter into your own pain. You haven't allowed yourself to actually enter the pain of what you're experiencing. You want change. You want a transformation of your circumstances, but rather than choosing the way of maturity and walking through the pain, which will lead to the transformation you are so longing for, you would rather just suck it up and deal with it. After all, pain is weakness leaving the body, right? What a bunch of hogwash. Pain is weakness entering the body. And when it does its job in your life, pain brings us face to face with how wrong things are, how far off from reality, how far reality is off from the future that God has promised. So health and maturity demands that we be willing to deal with our pain. And let's be honest, it's more painful to deal with our pain than to medicate ourselves through it. And lament is taking that pain and it's holding it up to God's face, saying, Father, this is what is. This is what I am experiencing and this is what it feels like. But that's what you've promised. So, help. Some of us are really good at complaining. But our problem is our complaining is to other people or to ourselves, not to God. So, Christian, let me ask you, can your Christianity, the Christianity you subscribe to, can it sustain the full weight of your complaints? Is the God whom you worship, whom you claim to believe is all-wise and all-powerful and all-sovereign and all-knowing and all-loving, can that God in your mind bear up under the weight of your frustration and discouragement and sorrow overwhelming your heart? And may I suggest to you, if he can't, he's not worth your worship. And he's not the God of the Bible. To steal a book title, your God is too small. Number one, turn. Number two, complain. Number three, ask. Ask. Christian, what do you want God to do? And will you, fueled by your faith that God loves you, that he's for you, that he's planned your eternal flourishing, will you ask? Do you believe that God can actually get behind what you ask him to do to what you actually want him and need him to do? That's part of our fear that keeps us from lamenting to God, right? What if I ask for the wrong thing? What if what I ask for actually makes things worse? What if what I'm asking for will actually make things more painful and be more hurtful in the long run? 
Well, we've forgotten Romans chapter 8. The whole creation's been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Christian, just ask. In your groaning, in your hoping and longing for something far better than your current experience, just ask. Invite the Spirit of God within you, or rather invite God into the sorrow and discouragement, and the Spirit of God within you will intercede for you according to God's will. Allow your imperfect complaining and groaning and asking mixed with the Spirit's perfect interpretation according to God's will bring about the perfect result. All things working together for you, beloved of God. Turn. Complain. Ask. Fourth, trust. Trust. In our text, the overt move to trust begins in verse 21. Yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So I say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my hope in him. Lament is different than despair. Despair may turn to God or some version of God. Despair will, cons- will certainly complain and shout and rage. Despair may even ask God or whatever supreme being what is happening. But despair then turns away and walks alone. Despair loses sight of the hope of promises fulfilled. Despair enters into the chasm for sure, even pulling on some version of God to descend with But then despair takes a hard left-hand turn at the bottom of the canyon and starts wandering alone. Despair pulls on God and then walks away, away from the ascent, away from the hope, deeper into the pit, alone. Lament begins by turning to God. 
lament, pulls on God, vocalizes the pain and the suffering as well as the deep longings of the heart, and then lament refuses to loosen its grip. Lament might as well say with Jacob, I will not let you go, God, unless you bless me. That's trust. That's absolute dependence. That's reliance. The chasm is dark and dangerous and uncomfortable. But you're in there with Jesus. So you trust. You wait. You lament. You watch. You pray. And God matures you. In the depth of the sorrow, he deepens you. But you have to sit. You have to wait. You have to trust. Lamentations 3.25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him to the person who seeks him. It is good to quietly wait for salvation from the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he's still young. Let him sit alone and be silent, for God has disciplined him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there's still hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him. Let him be filled with disgrace, for the Lord will not reject us forever. Even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion according to the abundance of his faithful love. Let me return you to that dark July day in 2019. God was present with us in our pain. So after describing how nighttime was a theater of scorning voices, no longer a time for rest, I spoke to the darkness in my journal. Dark night, enjoy your quaint victory. It will not last. By renewal of delight or faith becomes sight, your darkness, your power will be stripped. Naked you'll stand for the sons and daughters of God to mock. He is my light. He has become my salvation. So dark night, you bid me come. Know this, come, I must. It's true. But I come not alone. And I will not, cannot bow to you. Because the light has come and refuses to leave. I see him not in your dark. But he sees me. And so I wrestle I rest and sleep, and when I awake, I am still with him, and you, darkness, flee. How can we know the dark night will end? How do we know that lament is a thing of the present and not a prayer form we will use for all of eternity? How do we know that God will meet us when we dare 
to enjoy the grace of lament. Because 2,000 years ago, God himself wrapped himself in human flesh and entered our pain and our brokenness. While transcendent, he refused to distance himself from his creation. God took on flesh. He wept and was angry at death. He was saddened by rejection. He knew what it was to feel the depth of human pain. And this God-man, truly God, yet truly man, faced the darkest night a human could ever endure. Physically, the sky turned black. And everything was shrouded in darkness. Emotionally, the man was cut off from the love of his father. He became an object abhorred by man and forsaken by God. Spiritually, God laid upon him the sins of us all. The darkest of the darkest nights of the soul. And his lament rent the darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And moments later, he was dead. Jesus Christ walked into the chasm where the past promises of God were deeply at odds with the reality of his current sorrowful circumstances. And he clung by faith to God. And Jesus experienced what you and I, son and daughter of God, will never experience. God forsakenness on our behalf. Why? So that every promise of God to his people might be in Jesus. Yes. Amen. For the Lord will not cast us off forever. But though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart. So Christian, lean into the grace of lament. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, let me ask you, does your worldview have the horsepower to carry the load of your sorrow through this in-between broken space? And I think you know the answer. If Jesus is not the sum and substance of your worldview, beginning, middle, and end, then your worldview does not have the horsepower to carry your sorrow. It will break down. It will collapse. So listen to Jesus. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray.
Blessed Savior, you have promised that you will all our burdens bear. So may we ever, Lord, be bringing all to you in earnest prayer. Soon in glory bright, unclouded, there will be no need for prayer. Rapturous praise and endless worship will be our sweet portion there. Until that day when darkness will forever be gone, when we will dwell with you in unapproachable light, give us the grace to believe Give us the grace to trust. Give us the courage to lament. For the sake of our Savior, we pray this. Amen.